the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast, hosted by 360 Energy. This episode, we welcome another accomplished guest, David Lazel. David plays many roles in the industry. He is the director of the Canadian Energy System Analysis Research Initiative at the University of Calgary, an energy system architect with the Transition Accelerator, and member of the Mitigation Expert Panel for the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Now let's get into the episode with David. Welcome back, Dave and John. I also would like to welcome our guest this week, Energy System Architect David Lazel. Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. We have quite a few questions prepared for you regarding your specialization in hydrogen. Ourselves and our listeners are excited to learn more about the future of hydrogen in the energy industry and its role in reducing carbon emissions. To kick off this episode, can you introduce yourself and tell us about your role in helping with the energy transition in Canada? Yes, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm the energy systems architect with the Transition Accelerator. It's a pan-Canadian nonprofit organization that has a mandate to develop credible and compelling energy transition pathways that are capable of actually achieving net zero emissions by mid-century. I'm also a professor of, in the Faculty of Science at the University of Calgary and director of CSER. And CSER stands for Canadian Energy Systems Analysis Research Initiative. Over the past four to five years, my work with CSER and the Transition Accelerator has convinced us that electricity and hydrogen, both produced with minimal or no greenhouse gas emissions, will be the key energy carriers that are most likely to support the global economy in a net zero uh, emissions energy future. And so we've spent a lot of time and working on the hydrogen, trying to build a case for hydrogen, but actually identify what we have to do in the next few years and in the next three years, five years, 10 years in order to get this transition going and, and, and to make it a, a success. Uh, thank, thank you for that. You clearly are the right man for us to be talking to about hydrogen. Many of our listeners will have hydrogen on their radar but I think it would be really useful to, to sort of help us out with a, a sort of perhaps a brief history of the uses of hydrogen and what are the current methods of producing it so that we're all on the, the same starting page, so to speak. Now, sounds good. Well, hydrogen gas is made up of two hydrogen atoms that are held together by a really an energy rich bond that holds the two hydrogen atoms together. Now, hydrogen atoms are by far the most common atoms in the universe. Something like 74, 75% of all atoms in our universe today are hydrogen atoms. But when they pair, and, and they, they typically bind with other um, atoms, but when they bind together, it's much rarer. And that's when the two hydrogen atoms come together and bind with each other. And, and that gives us a, an energy-rich fuel. The world produces about 75 million tons of hydrogen per year, and Canada accounts for around 4 to 5% of that production. And virtually all of it is coming from fossil fuels, especially natural gas. And virtually all of it is used as an industrial feedstock, not as a fuel. In other words, for as an industrial feedstock, is we use the hydrogen not to burn and produce heat or to produce rotational energy in, a, in an engine, but we actually use it for its chemical properties to reduce other compounds. For example, we can reduce nitrogen in the atmosphere and make ammonia fertilizer. And that's one of the big uses of, of hydrogen. We can actually go in and crack bitumen, heavy oil essentially, and, and into a lighter crude oil. Or we can crack oil and put the hydrogen 
a chemical energy of the hydrogen to break oil molecules up into smaller molecules that we call diesel fuel, gasoline, etc. And so hydrogen is used heavily in the refining industry. It's used to make a variety of chemicals like methanol or carbon black, and it's used to make fertilizer. And those, that's the major uh, production today. Well, thank you. I, I think that even though I think I'm aware of it, I hadn't quite looked at it in that. And I think that's a great description and, and makes us realise that perhaps, you know, hydrogen isn't a new kid on the block, so to speak. It, it's something that has been there. And I, I suspect that a lot of people are missing the fact that it's the hydrogen in our fossil fuels, which is the bit that we're actually after. Yes, exactly. In, in a hydrogen economy, we're talking about hydrocarbons and we're trying to separate the carbon from the hydrogen. And, and I think the real thing is we talk about moving to a hydrogen economy. It's really moving beyond, and we can make hydrogen in different ways as well. You know, the use of hydrogen as an industrial feedstock. In a new hydrogen economy, the hydrogen would be made with, you know, vastly reduced greenhouse gas emissions, 90 to 95% reduction uh, in the amount of carbon that is emitted to the atmosphere as a result of making the hydrogen. And it would be used as a fuel to displace carbon-based fuels like gasoline, diesel, jet fuel, or even natural gas. And so that's really the concept behind movement to a net zero energy system and the role of hydrogen is to make hydrogen without carbon emissions. And then when you consume the hydrogen, you're actually displacing fossil fuels. So you, we, we can actually uh, don't need to make diesel fuel, gasoline, natural gas, and, and use it as an end-use fuel. So they can do that, you know, asked about the different ways of making hydrogen. There are, there are many routes to making low carbon hydrogen, but two of them are the most important. What we call blue hydrogen is similar to what we do today. We make it from natural gas, but instead of releasing the carbon dioxide, the byproduct to the atmosphere when you make the hydrogen, we can capture that CO2 and put it back in the ground, sequester it, geologically sequester it. And the second one is called green hydrogen, often it's given a color name of green hydrogen, and it's made by splitting or electrolyzing water to hydrogen and oxygen, because water, of course, is H2O. You take two waters and you uh, electrolyze them, you get an O2, right, and you get two H2s. But the electricity has to come from a non-emitting source, either renewable electricity or uh, nuclear electricity is a possibility. So, in, and that's basically the two routes to a hydrogen economy where we can use essentially non-emitting sources, create a fuel that when you consume the hydrogen, when it's combusted as a fuel, you can put a match to it and it, it produces a lot of heat. Uh, you can run it in an internal combustion engine theoretically, or you can actually use it to generate electricity in a fuel cell. And in all of those conditions, when we use hydrogen, the only product you get out of it is water. And so it's a, there's no greenhouse gas emissions from the end use of the, of the hydrogen. Well, that, 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 I think that's a really good foundation for us, I think, because I've heard the terms of blue and green floating around. And I think we do have the danger sometimes that people are just going, oh, hydrogens, that's fine, that, that's renewable. But it's, it's definitely a spectral matter, the colors of it, isn't it? So th thank you for that. Uh, Dave, even though this is a fairly new program, we're mining our data and we're finding that we have listeners from uh, around the world in Europe per se. And, and so the question for you is, how is hydrogen the answer to the low carbon future? And what role can Canada play in making this happen around the world? If you can share your thoughts on that. 
Well, I think, you know, as I, as I mentioned a minute ago, that, that hydrogen, when you use it as an end-use fuel, we're talking about taking hydrogen, which is now an industrial feedstock, and actually making it the end-use fuel, the, the car energy carrier that allows us to consume it in each of our homes, for, for example, to keep, keep warm in the winter, consume it in cars driving vehicles, not cars necessarily, but vehicles driving down the highway or in ships or airplanes even. So the, the idea is a, as a mobile energy carrier that which are almost all now carbon-based, it's pretty clear that if we're gonna get to net zero by 2050, we cannot continue to be burning carbon-intense end-use fuels around the planet, right? Yeah, we don't have enough biomass in the planet to actually replace those fuels, not even near enough biomass resources to move to biofuels. So it's pretty clear that that's not an overall solution. We also know that the internal combustion engines that we use today produce a lot of other compounds that aren't so good for human health and our atmosphere and environment besides carbon. It's got other emissions. So I think what we're looking at is to try to identify solutions where we can move away from carbon-based energy carriers. Doesn't mean we have to leave all our fossil fuels in the ground, but we can move away from carbon-based energy carriers to carbon-free energy carriers. Electricity is one, hydrogen is another, ammonia is made from hydrogen, that can be a third one, and, the, and, and the, then they become the energy carriers of the future. And so the, one of the benefits that Canada has is that we are one of the lowest cost producers of blue and green hydrogen in the world. Uh, a number of studies have been done. We have very low cost natural gas. We have holy rocks, very holy rocks that we can store lots of carbon in, in Western Canada. We have uh, fantastic hydro resources in Eastern Canada and British Columbia, Manitoba. We have the ability to make uh, relatively low cost electricity which is very low carbon. We got fantastic wind and solar resources in various places across Canada, and we also have a nuclear capacity. So there's, of all of the assets we have, we can produce um, hydrogen at, you know, about half the wholesale cost of diesel fuel today, and therefore see a possibility of driving a, a new energy economy um, that that is not only gonna meet the needs for Canadians, but we could be a major exporter of hydrogen or hydrogen products, right? energy carriers to the rest of the world. Just a quick follow-up question, and perhaps you may or may not know the answer, but is Canada collaborating with any other countries in this area to make this a, a major initiative? Certainly in many parts of Canada are in discussions with many other countries. Uh, I mean, some meetings in a week or so with Germany, and they're very interested in hydrogen. We've had a number of uh, meetings with Japan and South Korea who've already made major commitments to, to hydrogen and they are interested in importing hydrogen in order to meet their needs for electricity generation and for, for uh, transport and as a carbon-free fuel. Japan recently announced that by 2030, it wants to import 3 million tons of hydrogen per year. To put that in perspective, that's the amount of hydrogen Canada produces today, approximately, for its industrial feedstock, all of Canada. Uh, so essentially, we could double the hydrogen production we have today and, and export all of it, and we'd just meet the 2030 requirement in Japan for, for hydrogen, their demand. And they look at us, in fact, it's some of the Japanese studies that have done, have looked at where in the world can they make low-carbon hydrogen, 
and uh, Canada's come up as probably one of the lowest cost sources. And so there's certainly discussions, announcements in the last two weeks of a Japanese company that announced that they were in fact partnering with some companies in Alberta to make essentially hydrogen and then ammonia and export ammonia to Japan as a fuel for the power generation sector and as a source of hydrogen in Japan. You can transport ammonia more easily than you can transport hydrogen over long distances on ships. So there's so there are a number of announcements in, in this area. In terms of countries that are kind of competitors with us, the big one that are also interested in meeting markets for hydrogen, Australia is a very major one, Saudi Arabia, and, and some countries in South America are really starting to, you know, turn around and say, okay, we could actually compete in this market. Interesting. Thank you for that. Uh, can I put a supplementary to, to that? You've mentioned ammonia a couple of times as, a, as an energy carrier. How, how do you use ammonia as an energy carrier? What, what's, what's the technologies that need to be involved? Well, it's actually very interesting, and I would encourage people interested in this to just start Googling around ammonia turbines, ammonia <laughs> engines. You can actually, ammonia, as we all know, is, you know, when you, you make ammonia and you can make nitroglycerin from the ammonia, right? So it's, you can, it's a very energy-rich molecule. To make it, what you do is first make hydrogen, and then you combine hydrogen with nitrogen gas from the atmosphere. It's a process that's typically called the Haber-Bosch process. And, and you get ammonia. A huge amount of energy is stored in that molecule and it can be burnt in an engine. It can be uh, put through, they have gas turbines now. The Japanese are developing gas turbines that, or they've already developed in Mitsubishi for large scale, like hundreds of megawatts of power generation. The, and you can also, there are ammonia fuel cells. And so you can actually feed an ammonia to a fuel cell and get electricity of the other high efficiency. So I think what the problem with ammonia is it's a pretty nasty compound, right? And uh, you don't want to breathe it, it'll not do well. And it's also very water soluble. So if it gets into waterways, et cetera. So I think what's seen is, is it's an excellent way of carrying a large amount of carbon-free energy at a very, at a much lower cost. Now you could also say, well, why don't we put great big hydro lines, right, to move electricity as another energy carrier across. Well, I think the, you know, the cost of moving, say, you know, huge amounts of electricity or amount of energy, a thousand kilometers or more, the cost of moving ammonia is probably one-tenth or less the cost of moving electricity, same amount of energy. So in our analysis, the world requires in energy systems of 2050, we require not only the ability to produce a lot of zero emission energy and energy carriers that can actually be moved around to where they're needed. But we have to be able to move massive amounts of energy from one part of Canada or one part of the world to another. And the, there's people around the world, since it a few years ago, there was a finally decision that to meet net zero 2050, we really had to be looking, well, we really have to start thinking seriously about what the energy system of mid-century is looking like. What, what's it really going to look like? And to be honest, there's not that many choices. It's not an unlimited number of choices. We know for a fact, you know, just do the number, that we are going to need to replace the carbon-based energy carriers we have today. You can't continue, we can't 
you know, it's, it's obviously you can't capture CO2 at the tailpipe of every car. Just the logistics of doing that uh, is unbelievable. Or even on every chimney of every, you know, what we need are energy carriers that do not emit carbon when they're consumed. And we're down to electricity and hydrogen alternatives, hydrogen and hydrogen ammonia alternatives. And I think that the world's, when we committed a few years ago to net zero 2050 and stopped thinking incrementally and started thinking transformationally, there was a recognition that countries had to say, okay, how do we build a net zero energy system in, the, in a way that actually creates jobs, that creates economic opportunity and doesn't undermine you know, undermine and it basically, ideally, takes advantage of the infrastructure we already have in place, our pipelines and others, and tries to redirect them to uses that are, uh, in the long term, sustainable. Yeah, thank you for that. I would guess a number of our listeners are familiar with use of ammonia, not in making explosives necessarily, but in large scale refrigeration systems, and will be aware that that you know it it, it has risk, but then. Pure hydrogen has an awful lot of risk if you're if you're trans transporting that, doesn't it? I think to the meat of my next question, and this is a difficult one to frame, and it might be a difficult one to answer, but I'll have a crack at it. But if hydrogen was to reach its full potential, what sort of impact would it have on us reaching our sort of emissions reduction targets? You know, would it play a 25% a part of it or a 50%? I'm not sure of the best way of expressing that, but I think you can get where I'm going with the question. Yeah. You know, what's the potential in re reaching zero or net zero that hydrogen could give us if it was deployed properly? Okay, so I think if it was deployed, our estimate is hydrogen and electricity, as we move to a net zero, they aren't really competitors, they're partners, right? And right. you can make electricity from hydrogen, you can make hydrogen from electricity, you can make electricity from fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage or nuclear energy or wind and solar, but you can also make hydrogen from fossil fuels with carbon capture and storage, or you, know, or you can make it through the electricity route, or you can make it from bio, and, if, and especially if you capture the CO2 from the biomass, you could get negative carbon emissions, hydrogen, right? So those are all the different strategies. Our analysis is that if you can use electricity directly and it makes sense at a systems level, probably the electric electrification route would be preferred in many cases. However, there are a number of really hard to decarbonize sectors where electricity, especially renewable electricity, just doesn't work, right? Heavy duty, long distance transport. You just can't put enough energy on on a truck in a battery on heavy trucks and drive those trucks like they do 20 15 20 hours a day and you don't have time to recharge them they don't have the ability to you know basically they just don't meet the fit for service is very poor so in those cases we've spent a lot of time working with the trucking companies and they're very interested in hydrogen as a net zero solution for hydrogen fuel cell electric truck I think we could say the same about many ships, about trains, a lot of trains, and certainly Canadian Pacific Railway is uh, taking a lead role. They're building uh, the first hydrogen uh, fuel cell electric train uh, in Calgary right now. And uh, I understand it's supposed to be ready the end later this year for rail trials, if you like, instead of road trials. We're, we're looking at many off-road vehicles. Already hydrogen is used for lift trucks in, you know, because you can use it indoors 
without any worry about air pollution, et cetera. But airport vehicles or heavy construction vehicles, hydrogen as a real niche mining. For so I think what we see is there are certain sectors that electrification doesn't work very well and the hydrogen can play a role. And overall, our estimate is about probably 30%, maybe 40%, 30 to 35% of our greenhouse gas emissions could be reduced by you know mid-century through energy-based greenhouse gases through the transition to, to hydrogen and and a lot of others would be a, a very significant increase in the role of electricity part of that depends on how much hydrogen do we make from electricity and how much hydrogen do we make from say blue hydrogen if you like from, from carbon-based fuels and that actually says to us then that, you know, for the purposes of today, hydrogen is not a niche solution. It is up there as being a major solution to what we're looking at. I think that's absolutely, our analysis is that, you know, I do not see hydrogen as being, uh, and I think some of my colleagues and friends might disagree with me, but I see hydrogen has a hard time competing with plug-in electric vehicles in the personal vehicle market. It just, you know, we use the typical vehicles are used three to 5% of the time, 95% of the time they're sitting parked on some of the most expensive land in Canada. They could easily be plugged in. You know, we have a crazy broken system, I would say in our personal mobility system, but nonetheless, if, if that system continues, plug-in electric vehicles make a lot more sense. However, for taxi, for heavy trucks moving around, for trains and ships, et cetera. Plug-in electric just isn't gonna meet the needs, right? And and so that's where there'll be, and these are still electric vehicles. They're, in fact, actually one of the reasons they're coming back with such engines now is they're benefiting from a lot of the electric vehicle advances in EVs. And all we're doing is have a range extender, a hydrogen fuel cell is a range extender on an electric vehicle. It gives you ability to fuel and charge your vehicle while it's driving down the highway, right? I mean, it's 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 actually a really nice. Again, it's a it's a hand and glove thing. It's a it's a partnership, I think, between electricity and hydrogen, that that we envisage as being key to to the transition to net zero. So, so Dave, it, based on what you've just described, it's a major contributor or requirements going forward. And so, the question to you is, how will the distribution of hydrogen be managed? Is it going to be through the natural gas pipeline repurposing, is that on the table? Will it be cryogenic trucks to be the norm? Or, or what, what do you see happening in the distribution of, of hydrogen going forward? That's a really good question. Well, hydrogen is a gas. So it's much more challenging to move around and store than liquid fuels. So the answer to your question depends on a lot on the region and the sector being served. If you're in a province or a region with excess low cost low carbon electricity and ideally a publicly owned grid so they can sort of not charge the grid charges to the hydrogen generation it may be possible to make the hydrogen from water right where it's needed if you're you can have an electrolyzer rated right a, a big truck fueling station you basically bring in electricity you make the hydrogen there you don't have to move it around it's just goes it compressed and goes right into a truck or liquefied and goes right onto a truck however in, in most cases the lowest cost hydrogen is going to be made centrally. So it will need to be moved. And because the fact that we pay five times or more for transportation fuels than we pay for heating fuels, the options open to transportation fuels are greater. We, you know, 
I give an example. We pay somewhere between what seven to ten or eleven dollars a gigajoule for for heat. That's retail price. We pay somewhere between twenty-five to forty dollars a gigajoule for transportation fuels, and we pay something like about thirty or thirty-five dollars, depending on where you are, to fifty or sixty dollars a gigajoule for electricity as retail. That's all in retail prices. So you know we pay a lot of variation. So if you're building a fueling station, so a small fueling station under a ton of hydrogen a day, compressed gases will probably be trucked into the fueling station, you know, and and it'll be delivered. But the reality is, is the economics of that is pretty lousy, and public subsidies will be required. For medium-sized fueling stations, something in a few tons a day of hydrogen a day at a fueling station, liquid hydrogen really makes uh, a lot of sense. But the costs are still pretty high. It, Cost a lot of energy to make a liquid hydrogen. It's 253 degrees Celsius below zero, and uh, it takes a lot of electrical energy to convert it. About a third of the energy in the hydrogen itself is required to make it liquefied. But if you're going to really go on large fueling stations that are many tons a day, and these ones can be really economic, and that's what you need for heavy truck on major highways, for trains, etc., ships. Dedicated hydrogen pipelines are best, but to be economic you really need a lot of demand on the pipelines. You can't be sending only five tons a day through a pipeline that goes 100 kilometers, for example. You, know, you can do a few tons a day through short pipelines, small ones, but you've got to get to scale. For hydrogen to be used as a heating fuel or for power generation, you know, in Japan, they're already starting to do it now. They want to get off nuclear. They want to, they've had the Fukushima problems, etc. They don't want to be burning coal and fossil fuels. They want to get to net zero. They're moving to the hydrogen or ammonia in, in power generation. For Canada, where we tend to really want to keep our prices for electricity much lower, we can see, and or for heating homes, hydrogen will probably be blended into natural gas at say 5%, 10, maybe even 20% hydrogen. And you don't need to change your furnace, you don't need to change your pipelines, your valves, and everything. It just, it's, it's more or less, the, most of the evidence is it's compatible with our existing system. But at 20% hydrogen, that's only 7% of the energy in the fuel because hydrogen's lower density. So if you really want to get to net zero, we're going to have to go to 100% replacement. And there's a number of places in the world trying to do that, especially in the UK. And, and so what we need to then is start changing out some of the equipment, the burner tips, the valves, regulators, sometimes even the pipelines. There's a lot of work being done on that now. I don't see the economics of that only becomes realistic when we start hitting about $200 a ton of CO2. And uh, and about above $200 a ton of CO2, which the government of Canada tells us we're going to hit $170 a ton by 2030. So when we get around that, we start getting the break even where you can burn hydrogen in, in home heating and in, instead of natural gas. And, uh, and that is going to require some fairly significant i don't see it coming until really at scale until approaching 2040 i think it'll be it'll be a later we uh, in discussions with you in the past we we know hydrogen's a, a big opportunity in canada and certainly there's a lot in alberta and so we thought the idea of, of arranging contracts for hydrogen could be piped in some capacity, transported from Alberta. And, and it sounds like a great idea to help mitigate some of the carbon emissions for some of our large customers. But in talking with some of the utilities, they're saying, well, 
that's going to have to be localized because effectively a lot of companies actually use natural gas as a feedstock and they can't have hydrogen in it coming from Alberta. So is that is that sort of the stumbling block of actually piping hydrogen from Alberta to the east or to the other parts of the west? Is that an issue? I, I think it's a significant issue of putting hydrogen into natural gas for in our transmission lines. Putting hydrogen into natural gas in, at the gates into cities, which it's going into the low press, pressure distribution for space heating, is feasible and it's already being it's in the process of being tested in Fort Saskatchewan by ATCO, and it's being tested around the world. But when you're talking about putting hydrogen into transmission lines, so it's going into industry, it could, you know, they've divined their whole industry for using natural gas based on the energy content and its chemical composition of a natural gas that has fairly tight boundaries and and starting to put hydrogen into it could screw them up. I think what we're looking at in in a long-term strategy, and this really is an issue, I think is a main take-home message, is it's about scale. It's a lot, it's very much about scale, is to have a dedicated hydrogen pipeline. For example, the Trans-Canada pipeline across Canada is actually not one pipeline, it's multiple pipelines. And some of them are not being used right now. They're in standby. You know, and there is potential to modify those. It's not going to be inexpensive, but one could could modify some of those pipelines and to take hydrogen and bring hydrogen, pure hydrogen, across from Western Canada to Ontario and even Quebec and in the Maritimes. And, and the cost of doing it, as long as we're talking about moving thousands of tons of hydrogen a day in a pipeline, the economics is actually pretty good, right? It's a little bit more expensive than moving natural gas. But, but as long as you get to scale the the economics, you can there's some characteristics of hydrogen that means you can you can move the gas faster in the pipeline. You can the speed of the gas and you can when when can cheapen it. You have some challenges with materials. You can get embrittlement with hydrogen in in some steel pipelines. And so that has to be you might have to modify the pipelines to put a coating in or something to to ensure the, the hydrogen can be moved through the pipelines. There's quite a bit of work being done on that now. It, it sounds to me not only could it be used in the Canadian market, but if what you're describing is is possible and, and economically feasible, it's it's also a possible export that we could be doing in the States as well because of what you just described. Well, absolutely. And I think California has made it very interesting. We've had many discussions with California. They have a requirement. Uh, they've already said they're banning diesel fuel and heavy trucks, et cetera. They're even uh, banning people from using natural gas and space, and space heating and things there. So they're really trying to, they're trying to do, put in transitions to net zero. They have, they pay a pretty good price for hydrogen now. If we could get hydrogen to California, you know, low carbon hydrogen to California at scale, they, we should be able to, our calculations is that we could uh, be at a fraction of the price that they're paying now for the hydrogen. And so the question is getting all the business details worked out as to how to do that and making sure that they would prefer in California, they prefer green hydrogen. They want it made from electrolysis. Southern Alberta has probably some of the best wind and solar regime in Canada and a possibility. And there are pipelines that go from Southern Alberta right through to California. So that pipeline corridor theoretically could be a corridor to move, move green hydrogen to California. Blue hydrogen as well, of course. So that so that actually puts a whole different spin on the validity and the 
purpose of pipelines versus what we've heard in the mm -hmm. recent past where people were concerned how it's having a negative impact on emissions and actual fact if this could be sorted out it could have the pipelines could play a very positive impact on the emission side oh absolutely and i think one of the discussions that we need to have with canadians as is you know what is the concern about pipelines i can tell you right now is that you know just the basic techno-economics of it is you can move a whole lot more energy as chemical energy in a pipeline than you can as electrical energy on wires and the environmental footprint is a lot less, I would argue, right? Exactly the same amount of energy, how many hydro lines you're gonna need, plus the openness to sort of being storm effects and ice storms and wind storms and everything that can can undermine our, our electrical grid. So, so I hope there's not the pushback against pipelines was more about what was in the pipeline than the pipeline itself, but uh, we're gonna have a very hard time getting to net zero without moving chemical energy around large long distances and i think pipelines are going to be uh, key but again there needs to be uh, more of a discussion with all groups with you know with all parts of society first nations etc about you know about how what does a net zero energy system look like and how do we get there from here That's in interesting answers there. And touching on, on something you said a bit earlier, I've noticed that we are having certain natural gas equipment in the UK is now being offered with its possibility to make it an easy switch to hydrogen. You know, they class it as future proofing. That's the language yeah. that they yeah. use. It's a bit like when we went from town's gas to, to natural gas. And we had a major conversion program here in the UK going through. You You have touched on pricing a, a little bit and most of what we've been talking about has been driven by the aspiration and the need to get to net zero but i, I was wondering on, on pricing and this is a bit of a compound question one how will the hydrogen markets work because that's going to be a whole different market to the, the sort of oil and gas markets that we've got today and do we see hydrogen being a lower cost option to, to fossil fuels? And when might that happen? You know, if you can work us, work us and answer something around those elements of the question, <laughs> that would be interesting. And if you could do it in five seconds, Dave, that yeah. would be <laughs> <laughs> No, no problem. Well, as you know, I mentioned before, is we pay a lot more for, for electricity than on a retail price than we do for transportation fuels and more for transportation fuels, a lot more than we do for heating fuels. We keep, especially in Canada, heating fuels are kept low. We can make blue hydrogen for, you know, about 10 to $14 a gigajoule. The price of natural gas, the retail price for natural gas is about 7 to $15 a gigajoule, so depending on where you are in Canada and, and the, price of, of the price of natural gas. That's the wholesale price of making blue hydrogen. But it's a lot more expensive to deliver the hydrogen and especially to put it into fueling stations because they are more expensive. On the other hand, a fuel cell vehicle, when it's burning a, a gigajoule of hydrogen, it will take a vehicle, uh, a fuel cell will take a vehicle a lot further, fuel cell electric, than burning a gigajoule of diesel fuel in a truck or a gigajoule of gasoline. So you get a drivetrain efficiency improvement. And it can be as much as two times. For example, on city buses or on trains, you know, they, you get about a twofold improvement so half you get the same distance with half the amount of energy and and that's one of the benefits of, of hydrogen and hydrogen fuel cells 
So it's really complicated in terms and highly dependent on the scale of supply and demand. The bottom line is that in a mature hydrogen energy system, the cost of transportation should be comparable to today in our, in our analysis. And in a zero emission heating fuel though, I would have to say I haven't been able to do any scenario where I can see that it's less expensive. It's going to be more. Yeah. So we should be thinking right now about better building standards for all new buildings, about real retrofits of insulating existing buildings, because uh, effectively what's going to happen with, you know, to get to net zero in space heating in the future is going to be more expensive. You could, whether if you want to use electric heating, electricity is a lot, many times, up to six, seven times more expensive than, you know, and, and we have a real problem of, getting low carbon electricity in the middle of winter if we especially if we used it for heating you know you know the amount of the whole effect on our energy demand is you got to have all of the infrastructure in place to make electricity in the middle of winter even though you're not going to use you, you, you won't be using as much in the summer right so so you're going to have all this infrastructure sitting around not being used so the question that we're looking at is in 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 we see hydrogen as perhaps a better solution for many Canadian cities, unless you're really in more moderate temperates, moderate climates, uh, British Columbia, maybe Halifax, they could get with uh, heat pumps more. But, but you know, in the, in the end, you know, we're, we're probably going to have to accept the fact that uh, some of our energy is going to be more expensive. And I think sending, you know, carbon taxes are going to be part of helping to, to helping to find the funding to do that. Now, I think I think that's interesting because I've I've long held the view that we've been, if you like, underpaying for energy for a long, long time. Certainly, we haven't factored in its environmental costs and everything. And if we had have done that, we probably wouldn't wouldn't be so so worried about our alternative energy is going to cost us more. But I think your your point about buildings is a very very valid one, because sometimes we focus on energy generation. But if we can reduce demand, you know, that's the that's the best kilowatt hour, isn't it? The one that we don't use. Absolutely. And you yeah. talk about the price of energy. Uh, in the UK, you pay quite a bit more for energy than we do. We so. do. And we so, do. So. Yeah. Thank you. This has been a great conversation to listen in on. To end off this episode, we talked quite a bit about the role of hydrogen in reducing carbon emissions and getting closer to a targeted net zero. What role do you see governments playing in the development of the hydrogen market? Well, I think we the first thing we do is we need a hydrogen and electricity strategies. We need a strategy to get us to net zero. I would very much I very much disagree with the thought that all we need is a carbon tax and let the free market decide. I think that the free market won't decide. All we'll get is incremental change and 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 we'll get political problems and we aren't going to make the progress. All of our major transformative changes in our energy systems in the last 200 years or more around the world have been done by purposeful developing infrastructure and and having a clear vision a reasonably clear vision of, of where we wanted to go or where we weren't going to go right as part of it I, I think we need carbon taxes but rather than handing the money back to the taxpayers i would argue it should be invested in the infrastructure changes we needed to deploy um, this will create jobs attract investment and generate the demand that will bring down the pricing and then get us to scale. And we also need appropriate policies and standards. So I think the government has an incredibly important role to play 
But the most important thing is all levels of government, from municipal, provincial, territorial, national governments, need to have a shared and aligned vision and as to where we're going to go. That is happening in other countries. There's hydrogen strategies and electricity uh, strategies around the world that are coming out. Canada has a hydrogen strategy now, and many of the provinces are starting to develop theirs. The nice thing about hydrogen in the Canadian context is that every province in Canada has an opportunity to play in the game. They can produce hydrogen, they can use it. You know, we have a lot of assets in this, in this country for hydrogen, and uh, many of them can, and even got the economics that they can export it. So what we're finding is, is that it's going to be customized to each province and region, but there should be a way to pull together a shared strategy about where we're trying to get to. And, uh, and once we have that, let's get alignment of policies and, and investment. An insightful but loaded way to end this episode off. Thank okay. you again, David, for joining us today. I can confidently say myself, Dave, John, and our listeners have left with more hydrogen knowledge than we had 30 minutes ago. <laughs> Any final comments, Dave and John? No, Dave, I, I'm so pleased that you've uh, joined us because obviously your your knowledge and your expertise is, is really helpful, as Lysandra said, not only for us, but our listeners. And I think uh, the more information people can understand how hydrogen, the role it will play, I think will be better served to get this out in the marketplace faster. So thank you for your input on this, for sure. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's touched me about this, listening to it, I've suddenly realised there's a geopolitical angle to this that I hadn't really thought about, which is we can generate hydrogen where we want it. We don't have to import it from another country that may have dubious um, credentials, should we say. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So thank you. I, I certainly have learned a lot from this. And I, and I think both Dave and I, you know, we, we regard ourselves as having expertise in the, end, in the ind energy industry. So it's really, is it embarrassing, but great to say we've learned a lot from it. So that's yes. really good. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again, David. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360energy, Inc. Tune into our podcast on Apple Music and Spotify by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360energy, Inc. See you next week.